from World Renew, the Office of Social Justice, and the Center for Public Dialogue of the Christian Reformed Church of North America, this is the Do Justice Podcast. Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Do Justice. It's me, Chris Orm, and I'm happy to be with you today, and I'm happy to welcome our guest, our special guest today, Jenny Yang. Jenny is the Vice President of Advocacy and Policy at World Relief. She focuses on refugee protection, immigration, and human rights. She's also the co-author of the book, Welcoming the Stranger, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration Debate. Jenny, welcome. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be with you guys and uh, friends and common collaborators in justice work. So thanks for having this conversation. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, very happy. And I like how you say friends. Yes, collaborators, co-conspirators. Yes, co Co-laborers, right? No, that, I think that's a biblical term. Co-laborers. co-laborers <laughs> yeah, I had a, I had a mentor. I, I've said this before, I think, on this show too. But I I have had a mentor. You know, when we're talking about justice work, it's like, you know, sometimes it's so big. And he would always say, like, "Well, how do you eat an elephant?" You know, and he said, "You know, one bite at a time." But he took it another step further and said, "Yeah, and with as many friends as." possible so (laughs) so let's take a bite out of the elephant today hey how's that that sounds good it's a big elephant but big elephant what we can i want to dive right in your book welcoming the stranger it is it's a staple on all of our shelves uh Mm. we've used it to discuss immigration in our circles including um being a part of our 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 blessing not a burden campaign Mm. and We saw that you posted online last summer about speaking to your son's first grade class about being a refugee advocate. Yes. Okay. So how, how did you talk with first graders about advocacy? Yeah. Well, a lot of them were like, well, what, what is advocate? They had never heard the term before. My, my own kids don't really understand exactly. I think what I do, Mm. all they think is you help refugees and they know kind of what a refugee is. Uh, And so I had an opportunity during career day to go to my son's first grade class and speak about what I do. And I basically started off by giving them a sense of like, what is home to you? Like what defines home? And a lot of them said their family, their friend. And I said, well, you know, what if there was a a war that broke out and fighting and you had to leave your home? Mm. Um, You know, how would you feel? And so giving them a sense of what that feeling is like. Mm-hmm. And then just showing them images of places around the world that maybe they've never seen before about what they're going through. So so what's happening in uh, Ukraine and uh, Afghanistan and other places where people are displaced in large numbers. And there was a lot of like eyes opening and mm-hmm. interest in what, what's happening. And some students were very bright. So they knew exactly what was happening in Ukraine. And they were talking about Russia and and what would you do? How would you respond? Would you fight back? And then other classes were just, you know, they uh, had a lot of, you know, more basic questions. But mm. I think all of them, I was trying to give them the sense of what it would feel like to lose everything. And as first graders, I think that's hard because that's a hard leap to make. But yeah. having them develop some empathy and a worldliness, like an awareness of what's happening around the world, I think is so important at, at a very young age. And so that's basically what I was trying to do. But when I talked about advocacy, I concluded my talk by saying 
all of you have power and all of you have the ability to communicate how you feel. Mm. And a lot of times you do that with how you feel about yourself, but sometimes you can advocate with and for others. And so I show them a picture actually of a boy who was exactly their age, who wrote a letter to President Obama saying that he wanted to welcome Syrian refugees. Mm. And the president actually welcomed this little boy into the Oval Office. And there's pictures of that. And so I said, even you can write a letter to the president. Um, and I asked them what they would say. And people said, well, I would welcome them into my home or, you know, with refugees, I would um, build them a, a new neighborhood where they can live in. I would give them my toys. Like, so they shared ideas about what they would do. Mm. So I wanted to instill in them that as citizens of the United States, that for most of them, that they can write letters and get responses and, and be powerful advocates and so that was just something I I, I did with them. Um, and I it's the same message I carry to adults too, because I think as adults as well, you can sometimes feel like it's overwhelming or daunting or you don't have time. And it's hmm. some of those things can be true, but I just want to have it be easy for people and have people understand the power of their voice hmm. in a lot of what they do. Yeah. You mentioned that they, like some of the kids really hopped on and they understood where you were coming from and what you were presenting to them more or less right away. But then you said mm. some kids had questions. What kind of questions? Like what, what sorts of questions came up? Well, they were wondering like, why, why is Russia attacking Ukraine is, right. is, you know, and then um, they also had questions like, how come, like, what's the United States doing? Like, what can we do to help them? And um, so I think there was a lot of concern, like, why is there war? Like, why, why do people need to flee? why like what can we do about it so there was a lot of kind of questions around the war like why does war happen hmm. um so kind of trying to explain that and then you know questions around well people were bewildered that the president would even receive your letter and so <laughs> they were shocked about that because you know i don't think any of them had written a letter to the president before right um and so you know they were surprised about that but there was a lot of curiosity like i think people were wondering what life is like in Ukraine or what life is like in Afghanistan and, um, you know, questions around that as well. So, yeah, I mean, as you say that, I'm thinking to myself, man, those are the kinds of questions that we should kind of keep asking, you know, even, mm. you know, as we approach our advocacy, as we approach whatever uh, sort of issue is, is, you know, forefront for, for you, like, Hey, why? Why is this happening? What is it? Like those very basic questions. I know sometimes we want to jump right to the solution and, mm. you know, maybe some understanding would go a long way. You mentioned, yeah. you know, talking to young people about an issue like, you know, refugee resettlement or immigration reform. There's mm -hmm. some folks who I'm sure would say, <laughs> you know, like, well, that that's too young, but, but you know, what do you, what do you say to that? Because I, I, I think these are important conversations and I know like I've had conversations with young people about racial justice and, and, mm. and, and climate justice. And, and again, it's the questions they ask that sort of show me they're ready. But mm. in that, in that moment, like you're in your, you're in your son's class, like, yeah. How did you walk away from that conversation? Like how did, yeah. Like... Well, one, one thing that I thought was so interesting was that they all had this common reaction, which is, of course you would welcome them. Like if that person came to my neighborhood, of course I would welcome right. that refugee. And they 
we're all reflexively innately knowing that you have to be kind, like that you have to be welcoming. And so it's fascinating because these are the values we instill in our children. Mm. And yet I think as we get into adulthood, we lose those values. Like we think about, well, we don't have enough. Well, you know, there's not enough to go around. Well, we have too many people in our community. Like they're, they're different than us. But as children, you don't ever think they can't get along because they're different or you don't really think, well, there's not enough to go around. You reflexively know that you have to be kind and welcoming. And so it's it's just fascinating to me because the values and the kindness, I think that children show each other a lot of times are values and, and uh, you know, attitudes that we we lose as adults. And so it was just a good reminder, I think for me that, that, openness, that sense of generosity, that spirit of friendship really is so strong as a young child and that we need to preserve that as we get older and not get hardened into thinking in a scarcity mentality where there isn't enough to go around and where we start to think that we can't either be friends or be in community with people that are different than us, which frankly, at least in the United States and probably Canada as well, that when the Syrian refugee crisis was happening about, you know, eight, well, over 10 years ago, that there was this reflexive, well, we can't let them in because they're X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. Most of the American Christians were saying, well, they're Muslim, and that's a threat to American Christianity, Mm -hmm. Canadian Christianity. And so, you know, you saw that, but I I feel like there has been almost a, a change, I think, especially in the past few years, as we have seen more Canadians and Americans stepping up to welcome Afghans and to welcome Ukrainians, where no one has ever, like really no one has said, don't let them in. They've all been saying, we need to do more to let them in. And so there has been a shift, which I think has been a welcome shift. And I think I'm hoping that that continues as we, you know, build out good programs and policies to serve uh, displaced persons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's something about remaining like curious, like being in a posture of curiosity when, you know, I love to travel. I mean, mm. I, I I loved to travel pre-pandemic. I, you know, we're, we're, we're planning some trips again and that's nice, but uh, yeah, like, and I think like the most immersive or the, the best experiences that I've had have been, mm. you know, because we're curious and we want to know more. And I think, yeah, like kids have that curiosity, like, yeah, why, what, how, you know, like all those, yeah. <laughs> I remember yeah. when my, you know, my son's 18 now. And so, you know, it's a, <laughs> we're a far cry from grade one, but we're a long <laughs> ways away from there. But I remember, I remember being in the car with him and him, like just the constant, well, why, well, why, well, why, mm-hmm. well, yeah. why, you know, and as a parent, you're kind of like, <sighs> because, you know, but, right, right, right. but when we're having these kinds of common, these con- conversations, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, why? And like, it's a, I, I feel encouraged, right? Because I need to be reminded, like, stay curious, like keep asking why. Yeah, actually my, so it was Martin Luther King Jr. Day where uh, it's like the third Monday, I think uh, in the United States where we, uh, the kids don't have school. And so at school, they were talking about who Martin Luther King Jr. was. And my middle child, Joel, who's four, uh, came home and we were talking about Martin Luther King Jr., He's like, well, you you know, you're black to me is that you're wearing a black T-shirt and I'm white because I'm wearing a white T-shirt. I'm like, no, that's not what it means. And I was like, it's actually the color of your skin. And he's like, well, who who is black? And I'm like, you know, one of our, our good friends um, is black. And so I was saying, oh, you know, Auntie Sabrina is black. And he's like, oh, and she was like, and he was like, oh, does that mean, you know, her son is black? I was like, yeah, Cole is, you know, he's black too. 
And then, but I was like, but Uncle James, Sabrina's husband is white. And she, he was like, oh, and he's like, well, can, can Uncle James turn black? And I'm like, no, like, you know, once you're that race, you're that race. He was like, am I white? And I'm like, no, you're actually Asian. And <laughs> so like, and then he was like, he was like going through the list in his head. Right. And then, you know, the story that stuck out to him was how he's like, yeah, I don't like, I guess they shared a story Well, we were talking about how um, back in the day that blacks and whites couldn't share in the same restaurants, ride the bus. Um, they had to sit separately. There were separate water fountains. And he himself was like, I, that's not right that they had to separate people out. And he was processing it. And so it was like fascinating just to, for him to talk about and know what race is and how it's not what you wear. It's like the color of your skin. And it, to him, he was kind of like, I don't, why would people separate them out? Like, you know, because it's never yeah. been an issue, right? And so yeah. just even speaking to him about human difference is has actually been fascinating as well. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. And actually my kids are half Chinese and half Korean. So that's like a whole nother conversation. Right. <laughs> they're, you know, like, they're like, Oh, like, Oh, I'm Korean. Oh, I'm Chinese. You know? So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, yeah, it's fascinating. Cause I, I mean, I, I love the questions, you know, like, wait, mm-hmm. what, like who, who am I? And, and who's auntie Sabrina? And like, yeah, like that's those kinds of questions. I mean, they, they reveal a lot and uh, maybe a newness to the journey, right? Thank you to the Micah Center for sponsoring this season of Do Justice. The Micah Center at the King's University helps students and the wider community grow a global vision of justice and renewal. Through classes, workshops, internships, lectures, global learning experience, and community initiatives, the Micah Center brings the ancient Hebrew prophet Micah's call to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God to bear on our contemporary world of global hunger, injustice, systemic poverty, war, and violence. Let's talk about the the length of the journey. Let's talk yeah. about being in the trenches for a long time. And look, it's the TikTok generation. Um, yeah. We consume media, you know, in 15 minute, 15 second sound bites and quick fixes are super appealing. Like, like we want things to work. We want things to be easy, but discipleship and you know, we talk about working toward God's shalom. It requires, yeah. you know, we we've we've been referencing Eugene Peterson's quote, the the long obedience in the same direction. Mm. Yes. So you've been involved in advocating uh for holistic reform for the mm. US immigration system. Uh, yes. you know, I I I come at that conversation, you know, I'm I'm in I'm Canadian, I'm in Canada, and you know, we have our own history um and our own immigration experience and you know i have friends who have been in the in in those trenches for a long long time too but for you navigating that what has long obedience in the same direction meant for you as you engage in immigration reform and i think part b to that how did you how, how did god <laughs> pull mm-hmm. you into this like what i'd love to know that story too yeah, so I'll I'll start with your second question as how yeah. I began. So uh, it's interesting because when I um, I was in college and I studied abroad in Spain and I didn't I studied international relations in school and when I went there I uh, kind of saw from being there that there was 
really blatant racism in Spain. And I had experienced it growing up in the U.S., but to see it against mostly African migrants in Spain was really eye-opening. And so I remember people there, I was riding the subway one time when uh, a group of teenagers graffitied on the subway wall in front of a black woman and her child, get out of my country, black people. Mm. And what bothered me about the incident was not only that it was blatant racism, but that no one on that train said anything to this young black woman who obviously saw what was happening and was just sitting there. And so that summer I volunteered at the UN doing some research around asylum laws. And I also volunteered at this um, grassroots anti-racism organization called SOS Racismo. And I, I, it was really to battle racism. It has to happen at a systemic level through laws and policies, but also at an interpersonal level through social change and like social attitudes so both of those experiences kind of exposed me to what really is needed to create change. So when I came back to the U.S., I knew I wanted to work with refugees because like my own experience as a daughter of immigrants, but also what I'd seen. And so I worked in politics for a little bit and then I transitioned to World Relief. And at World Relief, I started working in the U.S. refugee program. But as I started doing that, our constituency, our our work is to really mobilize churches to care about the vulnerable. And what I found in my work at World Relief was that it was the evangelical church in the U.S. that were the most vocally anti-immigrant, that they were the ones pushing against policies that would alleviate a lot of suffering for a lot of immigrants in this country. And for me, I I did not and I actually was not aware that so many American Christians, it seemed like to me, hated immigrants. Mm. And being the daughter of immigrants, I I was like, why are they so caustic? Why do they think immigrants are a threat? I come from an immigrant family. It was astounding to me. I was like, wouldn't you want more immigrants in this country? Isn't that our ethos and our history and our identity as a country of immigrants? Yeah. And so I started to dig deeper into that. And when I started seeing that there's a theology of migration that Christians are missing and also the reality of the history of migration and the facts of migration being economically beneficial, all of these things, it became a passion of mine to start really discipling the church into not being so anti-immigrant. And so I became very passionate about that because I felt like people were missing out on the missiological and theological implications of what it means to welcome a stranger and Mm -hmm. Also, the fact that when you look at the policies, most people, I think, would be supportive of the things that we were advocating for at World Relief. And so, um, and, you know, it's funny because when I started doing a lot of this work on advocacy, I never wanted to incorporate my personal story into this because I thought, well, based on the facts and the data and the Bible, people should believe what we believe. And so um, I didn't want to personalize it because I actually felt like if I personalize why I care, people would dismiss me. They wouldn't take me seriously because they said they would think, oh, she's just being emotional or she's just it's personal, but it's not factual. And so I never wanted to incorporate my personal story into it. And I remember one time I was um, speaking at a college and Afterwards, I was speaking to a room of like 80 and 90 year old, like retired folks, you know, all of them were white, no people of color. Mm. And like, I was talking about like these facts and data and they were, they weren't really like buying what I was saying and I wasn't winning them over in any way. But then one woman raised her hand and said, well, why do you care about this? Like, tell me your personal story. And I started sharing about my dad and how he was orphaned during the Korean war how we immigrated to the U.S. and the people were like crying and they're like, oh my gosh, and the atmosphere totally changed. 
And then after that talk, when I left, the coordinator of this chapel was like, uh, and this the speaking engagement was saying to me, she's like, you need to start off sharing your personal story because that's what really connects you to the people you're speaking with more than mm-hmm. the dad and the fact. And ever since then, I've started talking about my dad first and like his story just as a way of connection. And so like, even for me, it was a journey of, of linking my personal history and my identity to the work that I do. Because for a long time, I didn't want to connect them at all. And then it became like a powerful part of my story, my advocacy, because I would say in the in the immigration advocacy space that it is people with those lived experiences that are the best advocates. Yeah. So what keeps you in it? Honestly, I feel like it is a journey in terms of of running the marathon and not running a sprint and being mindful of the fact that when you are advocating for systemic change, it does not happen overnight. So I've been in this work for over 15 years. We have not seen significant legislative change. And I think the the things that keep me going are the constant stories of people who are suffering under our broken system. Hmm. You know, we like to say there a broken system creates broken people. And that's what we're seeing in the immigration system in the US right now. Um, and along the way, I've met so, so many people like you, Chris, and others that uh, have the same longing, right? The same foundation, the same desire to see social change. And when you meet those people, you realize that we're in this work together. And so yeah. at times when it's discouraging, at times when bills don't pass, uh, it's being in that community where people remind you hey, you know, God's still working. Hey, people's lives are still, still being changed, even though you don't see it immediately. Like that encouragement and that community is is really what keeps me going. Yeah. Um, and I also feel like, you know, God continually uses people, even in scripture, through seasons, right? And And a lot of times deliverance and freedom and liberation don't happen even within a decade. Sometimes it's 30 years, you know, and walking in the wilderness is 40 years. It's, you know, there's just long periods of drought in many people's lives. And so being reminded of that, I think is is helpful as well. Yeah. I I think we've all had those moments too, right? Where I am so thankful for the people who have come alongside me in my, Mm -hmm. in my, I don't want to call them weaker moments, but those points where you're just, you know, this, like this is hard. Like this is taking too long. Why isn't it changing? And mm. I'm so discouraged. And yeah, that I'm in. <laughs> I'm always encouraged by just the, you know, I came to faith when I was 16 years old. I remember going mm. to the youth group and they talk about how the world is broken. And then, you know, the the what the church was telling me at the time of how the world was broken versus how I experienced it and saw the brokenness in the world mm-hmm. were very different. And then when I saw right. what where those broken points were and realized mm-hmm. that there was something about the radical love of Christ mm-hmm. that can do something about that, and mm-hmm. that as his follower, I wow. I'm I get to be part of that. I think you know, and having people who have constantly reminded me of that is just. Yeah, invaluable. Like, like it's a community thing, right? Like, like we can't do it alone. Give us a story where you have seen God at work, where you've seen, yeah, the Spirit of God moving in the work that you do, and maybe it's in a way that you didn't predict or you weren't expecting. Or is there a story that fills well, your tank? You know, like that. Yeah. I, like at those moments where you just, you know, when, maybe when you're running on empty and. Yeah, you know, no, getting the, I, the text sure. back from your friend. Like, yeah, no, I remember once I was invited to speak in rural Ohio 
And I flew in and I had to rent a car and drive over two hours to like Amish country. Mm. And I remember driving and um, I was like, I don't know if this is right because I'm literally driving through cornfields and I didn't see anybody. There was no buildings. And then finally I like get to this area where there's um, horse and buggies on the road. Like there was an Amish schoolhouse. It was kind of like from a movie, this idyllic scene of like children running around and like beautiful people like on horses and buggies and farms. And, and um, like in the middle of Amish country, there's like this random like modern hotel, which I was staying at. And so I stayed there and checked in. And then that evening I was speaking at this church and the guy who had invited me to speak at his church told me two things. He said, you should know first that everyone here voted for Trump. They all Trump supporters. Um, and the second thing you should know is that they all listen to Fox news. And I was like, okay. Perfect. Um, but I was like, this is my opportunity. Like these are the people I want to talk with. And so I gave my standard presentation about what it means to welcome the stranger and welcome refugees and immigrants. And afterwards I was standing in the front and there were some people who came up to me. And I remember this one woman came up and was talking with me and there was like an old friend of hers that came up to her, this woman to talk and she didn't want to talk with me, but she ended up talking to this woman that was talking with me. And so like, we ended up in a conversation and, you know, she's like, well, I'm not sure about what you said because you know, I I was watching Sean Hannity and he was saying that when Muslims come into the U.S., they're trying to establish Sharia law. And I do not want Sharia law in our communities and things. And I was like, well, um, you know, can you give me an example of where he thinks Sharia law is being implemented? Hmm. He's like, she's like in Houston, like in Houston, there's there's Sharia law and the Muslims just want to take over. And I was like, well, I don't think there's Sharia law in Houston. And but I do think there's a Muslim community in Houston, likely, and other communities in the U.S. And, you know, it's their right to practice their beliefs. And just like we practice our beliefs as Christians. Hmm. And so, you know, I talked about some of the, the refugees that were coming in and she kind of like looked at me thoughtfully. And she's like, is it really hard to do what you do? I'm like, well, you know, sometimes it's challenging. And she's like, well, and she started sharing about how she adopted um, these kids that were coming from broken homes and how um they were had they had addiction issues to alcohol and drugs and then how her church community what didn't walk alongside of her didn't walk alongside her and judged her hmm. and she started crying because she was like well maybe that's what refugees go through where they don't feel welcome and you know wow. they need a community to welcome them and i was like yeah and you know in that moment i realized this is not a woman who like hates the other. This is a woman who's never been exposed to the other, mm -hmm. right? Like she, her whole experience living in this community has been one where she's had, she's been fed misinformation and fear and that's her worldview. And so, you know, I realized in that moment that this is not a woman who did not have a cost in following Christ. In fact, she has been following Jesus at a cost by loving people who were, quote unquote unlovable and was yeah. um cast out for those things. And you know, her lack of understanding of the refugee experience does not speak to her love for God or Jesus. It just speaks to her not having been exposed to those things. And so it was an eye-opening moment for me because mm -hmm. I realized in the work that we do, it's easy to castigate people who don't share a point of view. Yes. Um, when I feel like for many people in the church, I think um, the lack of information, the lack of relationships has led to people having fear, which I feel like we're responsible to dispel. And so it was 
I think we're actually friends on Facebook. She like friended me. And so, um, uh, I, I'm like, don't keep in touch with her, but I think about her a lot because, um, I just feel like she was, had an incredible testimony. Yeah. We weren't even supposed to talk. She didn't agree with what I said, but in that conversation, uh, she changed really her point of view. And actually at the end of the conversation, she said, you know, I watch Sean Hannity every night. He is the kindest person I know. And I don't, I've never heard him speak in the way you speak about immigrants. And she's like, I'm going to write to him after this. And I'm going to tell him that he should have you on his show. And, you know, (laughs) and like, I never got that invitation. I would actually welcome it. But, um, but again, it was, it was a reminder to me that I should never vilify or dehumanize people who don't share my point of view. And everyone has their own story, their own pain. And um, it's when we can not question people's motivations or label them into categories um, is when I think we can build more common ground on issues of mutual concern. So that's that's always been a good reminder for me. Wow. That's everything right there. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate you spending the time with us. Before we go, where can folks kind of catch up with the work that you're doing and get in touch with you? What's the best way to sort of follow you, encourage you, cheer you on? So you can follow World Belief because World Belief has uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We post things a lot about the work that we do. You can follow me personally. I'm on Instagram, Jenny Yang 318 And then Facebook, you can friend me or on Twitter. I You can just follow me, Jenny Yang WR for World Belief. So Jenny Yang WR. And we'll put a link to the book in the description too. Mm. Uh, so folks who haven't picked it up yet, they can, it, it, if this is a, you know, if this is an area that you want to grow in and, and, and sort of focus your justice impulses in, this is a great book to really get you started. And, mm. you know, um, like I said, it sits on, I think most of our shelves, like, you know, in my circle of friends, we all have the book. So grateful for this time. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jenny. Yeah. Thanks so much, Chris. I appreciate the conversation. Awesome. The Do Justice podcast is produced and edited by World Renew in partnership with the Office of Social Justice and Center for Public Dialogue of the Christian Reform Church of North America. Our opening theme was written by Quetzalcantla. Transitions provided by Valentin Sosnitsky. Until next time, remember that the Lord is righteous, he loves justice, and the upright will see his face.